Are you a marketing or advertising professional looking to stay ahead of the game? Well, we've got the perfect opportunity for you. Advertising Week New York is back for its 19th edition, and it's bigger and better than ever. Picture this, four jam-packed days of inspiring keynotes, thought-provoking panels, and networking with the industry's brightest minds. Advertising Week New York is where the world's top brands, agencies, and leaders come together to shape the future of marketing and advertising. But wait, here's the best part. You can secure your spot at Advertising Week New York during the exclusive Early Bird Summer Sale. Act fast and save 30% on all pass types. That's right, you'll have access to every session, every workshop, and every unforgettable moment. Don't miss this chance to gain insights from the industry's trailblazers, connect with potential clients, and elevate your career. But remember, this sale ends on August 1st. Head over to advertisingweek.com slash New York today and buy your pass. No promo code needed. The 30% discount applies automatically. Advertising Week New York, the ultimate gathering for marketing and advertising professionals. Be part of the conversation, be part of the innovation, and be part of the future. Get your early bird sale pass now and join us at Advertising Week New York. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a dear friend. We met us several years ago, I think during the pandemic journey, and we've stayed close. Journey Gunderson, the executive director of the National Comedy Center, was on our stage uh, at Hudson Yards in 2021 with the great Jim Gaffigan. Um, she is a delight, a bundle of energy. I absolutely love, love your uh, expression attributed to Sarah Silverman, I know, handle your shit or your shit handles you. I think that's fantastic. And we are thrilled to have with us today the delightful and really funny and charming Journey Gunderson. So welcome. Thank you for having me. So Journey, we share a history that we've not talked about, and that's working in sports. When I was uh, 23, I'm 58 now, I was the first executive director of the Sports Commission of New York City. And one of the groups that we worked very closely with was the Women's Sports Foundation. And I know that you spent five, five years there or so, Billie Jean King, Donna Deverona, so many other icons of women's sports. So I'd love to dial the clock back about 20 years and talk about your tenure working for the Women's Sports Foundation. Very cool, I'm glad you asked. I so often am talking about comedy now that I rarely get to go back in time to the sports part of my career, but uh, it was such a privilege to uh, work for such a visionary. You know, the, the Women's Sports Foundation is a nonprofit and it's the most powerful women's sports organization in the world. And it's, it's interesting and neat that Billie Jean King founded it in the 70s uh, for reasons most of your listeners probably readily understand, that it was about advocacy for uh, gender equity and, and equal pay for mostly elite female athletes. And then the organization evolved uh, with the times and, and grew to also look out for every girl, not just elite female athletes at the professional level, but the research that the Women's Sports Foundation did, what was born out of that research is that 
girls in particular glean so many benefits from playing sports in terms of confidence. Uh, it, there's a direct link uh, to their success in the business world. You know, I could go on and on their self-esteem. They're less likely to stay in abusive relationships. There's just so many benefits that uh, when I was hired for the organization, it was to be an educational media producer and uh, of a program called Go Girl Go that encouraged all girls to get involved and do something and pick a sport and get out there because the benefits are many. So it's been, uh, I was really fortunate to spend a, a big chunk of my career doing that work. Yeah, With, are they still in Eisenhower Park? Is that where their office is? Uh, I believe there are probably more than one now uh, in terms of their offices, in, one in Manhattan, one in Eisenhower Park. and they have satellite offices at different places throughout the country. Yeah, because way back when we uh, bid and won the 1998 Goodwill Games, which you'll remember, and there's a pool, an aquatic center that we got built in Eisenhower Park, and we were very close. I was trying to do it all in Flushing Meadow in Queens, and we couldn't get the land. And Nassau County, just over the border uh, from Queens County in New York City proper, gave us the land. And we also got a building from them that became the home of the Women's Sports Foundation. And uh, that was, geez, that was in probably the early 90s. That makes sense. Yeah, amazing. I spent a lot of time in that, in that building. Amazing, amazing. And looking today at the current state, you have the benefit of perspective, of course, mostly uh, journey. We're going to talk about comedy. But, but women's sports has become such a movement in this country. We just had my dear friend John Patrickoff on Great Minds. He is the co-founder of Athletes Unlimited. Um, we're about to have another Women's World Cup. Uh, there's a lot happening in the women's sports world, the WNBA, and having commercial success as well, not just in terms of you know passion, but brands getting more involved, putting more money into women's sports. Are you surprised where we are? Are you disappointed where we are? You have real perspective on the whole gender equity movement in sports for women. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question. I would say that like any movement, there are as many things to be excited about and grateful for as there are to be disappointed in. So, you know, you're always going to see one step forward, two steps back or examples of, of sexism that that pervade, but uh, I'm mostly thrilled and most poignant. Recently, I went to a New York Liberty game with my family. We did a, you know, I lived in New York City for years and now I'm in Jamestown where the National Comedy Center is. And so between comedy club visits, we went to a WNBA game and the energy was incredible. It was off the charts. The place was packed. And I left feeling like, you know, we've come a long way and this is uh, I mean, talk about the the women's final four and what we saw in the NCAA tournament this year, record amount of viewership uh, and some by some metrics outpacing the men's game. And now there are stars and, and talk about a, an intersection of comedy and sports when Saturday Night Live's weekend update does a sketch uh, commenting on some of the controversy that took place in the women's final that's a good sign regard you know the 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 downside is i thought that the focus should be more on how incredible the play was it was one of the most high scoring final fours for the women uh just incredible players uh incredible talent that i think is is unlike any we've ever seen uh but the fact that it's in the zeitgeist and the snl is spoofing the stories that came out of the women's final four shows you how far we've come 
Absolutely. So well said. You know, it's such an interesting topic. We had uh, another great guest on the show, Julia Borston, who's a reporter for CNBC, who recently wrote a book. Uh, and one of the big takeaways was that only 2% of uh, private equity, venture capital uh, money goes to women-owned or led businesses. Yet we know the same science or the same set of facts, I should say, tells us that women-led businesses are more successful than male-led businesses. There's a very odd dichotomy there. And in comedy, we've seen a real transition and evolution of the role of women in comedy, not just on stage, but as writers, producers. Uh, and I know at the Comedy Center, you celebrate many of those early icons of comedy, both men and women. Uh, it seems like that we're getting there, but in some ways still slower than we probably should be. Yes, I think you said it well. Uh, <laughs> it, I think uh, I'm trying to think of who to attribute this to, but it's been said many times, you know, kind of when can we stop talking about whether women are funny? You know, and sometimes people say it with good intentions um, where they'll say, hey, do you have a women in comedy exhibit? And I'm kind of like, hey, we were pretty conscious of not doing that because female comedians are woven throughout every exhibit at the National Comedy Center. Rather than treating them like it's a unique species within comedy, let's look at what's funny. Let's talk about the jokes. Let's talk about the work. Let's talk about the material. Let's talk about the craft and not about the gender of the person cracking the joke. Uh, so you said it well. There's been a lot of progress. In fact, one of the people I'm most excited about, Taylor Tomlinson, you know, arguably one of the hottest names in comedy right now. She's headlining our Lucille Ball Comedy Festival. She and Gabe Iglesias and, you know, there are a dozen other comics coming to town, to Jamestown. So it's a great time to see the National Comedy Center Museum and sort of uh, revere greats like Carol Burnett and Lucille Ball. Um, who kind of started it all, but taking the best of live contemporary comedy with someone like Taylor Tomlinson, who is breaking some of the ticket sale records set by the likes of Jerry Seinfeld in cities all over the place. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I was uh, stunned by something I just saw. I watched a documentary about John Belushi on a flight home over the weekend, and you know, he had a lot of challenges and, of course, died way too young. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, but one of the things that uh, was in the doc was that he was mean to the female writers and did not think that women were funny. And I was surprised uh, by that. I thought it was very it was done with the family's participation. So uh, good for them for keeping that in the film. And you go back, you look at those early days of SNL with people like Gilda Radner and, and Jane Curtin and Lorraine Newman. Uh, and uh, I, I guess there's still an old guard that thinks that way, which is uh, completely counter to reality, past and present. I had also read that about Belushi, which disappointed me because I'm such a massive fan of his. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people are a product of the era in which they grow up, right? So. We can uh, afford him that grace, I think. However, uh, you know, I identify as a feminist. And so if that makes uh, anyone roll their eyes, then buckle up for what I'm about to say next. But it's about power. And, and in, when you think about comedy, there is nothing more powerful in a room than being the one to make everyone laugh. 
And I think that that's the root of how people have bias when perceiving female comics. They almost cannot objectively uh, judge the material because there's something to some people, both men and women, that can be off-putting about a woman taking that much power in a room. And so for female comedians, you have to overcome that hurdle and be that much funnier to succeed. So I do think it's harder for, for women in comedy. And I think some of that's, you know, evolving and changing and getting better. But I think there's just an inherent sort of power dynamic that women have to, to get past before people will just relax and laugh. Uh, I, I think that was so well said. And uh, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Let's talk about uh, your tenure as executive director of the Lucy and Desi Center. Jamestown, such a special place. Lucille Ball and the relationship of Jamestown, which I'd love for you to share. Uh, and uh, let's slowly but surely make our way to the National Comedy Center. Sure. So uh, the origin? Yeah. Yes. So interesting that Lucille Ball was not just funny. She, many people know, uh, but many people don't, that she was an incredible businesswoman uh, behind the scenes and became the first female head of a major Hollywood studio. Now, there are Lucy fans out there, I'm sure, who are listening and saying, well, I thought that she, you know, just took over the studio out of a sense of duty and necessity to keep things together when she and Desi split up. And she always sort of joked that, um, you know, she didn't know what she was doing. And I think some of that has to do with her understanding that her brand and being beloved was the success of the company, right? So think of that era, 1950s, 1960s, uh, you know, identifying as this um, power hungry woman leader who uh, asserts that role with confidence, you know, maybe isn't the most readily beloved thing in 1967. So there's that. But the fact is she did the job. She took over the studio, ran Desilu and, uh, it was the most powerful studio of its era. And so then fast forward to the 80s when Jamestown, her hometown, approaches her and says, we want to build a museum about you. What do you think? We've been remiss and not, you know, in a bigger way celebrating your legacy. She said to Jamestown officials then, don't just make this about me. Don't just celebrate my legacy or my stuff in glass cases. Make Jamestown a destination for all comedy. And she had lived a life of and, and a career of witnessing firsthand that comedians and comedic artists don't get the same level of respect as other art forms. And so this came from a really earnest place. And it took us, so that was the origin of Jamestown saying, okay, let's let's create a, a festival to start with. And so the early days of the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival saw a young Ray Romano, uh, Louis Black, Ellen DeGeneres, the Smothers Brothers, George Wallace, and uh, some designs and, and plans were conceived of to make Jamestown this destination for celebrating comedy. Uh, a museum was built and opened and was more focused on Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz and their legacies, which is appropriate as they are arguably the first couple of comedy. And then there was a period of time in our 30 plus year history where it became 
too narrow. It was, it did become almost like what you picture a Trekkie convention becoming or Elvis fans. And there's nothing bad about that, but it wasn't as broad as being about all of comedy. So in some ways, Jamestown found success with that in the Lucille Ball Desiernes Museum and festival being very popular in the fan community. And there are droves of I Love Lucy fans worldwide. And for good reason, it's one of the best shows of all time. Uh, best situational comedy of all time. So fast forward to when I was uh, hired and meeting with the board of directors here in Jamestown, they shared with me that that wasn't the original intention and that Lucy Arnaz, her daughter, was very clear that uh, this was supposed to be bigger than that and, and more about the art form of comedy. So I was really hired to make that uh, vision uh, a reality. And so we started uh, grant writing. I did a lot of grant writing to raise the money. And long story shorter, we raised more than $50 million and built what has now uh, been named the best new museum in the country, the National Comedy Center. And uh, it was named to Times World's Greatest Places list. Uh, it's the nation's official cultural institution and museum dedicated to comedy and has been designated by the U.S. Congress to do this work. Okay, so in incredible stuff, but we got to dig a little bit deeper here. Not only was Lucille Ball an incredible groundbreaker and Desilu, the studio she created with Desi, uh, but they were hugely ahead on production and technology. They developed ways to film that had never been done before. They developed new production equipment uh, that changed the way sitcoms to this very day are filmed. Very, you know, if you go there and you're a real student of this stuff, you see it, but their impact, not only on comedy on Jamestown, but to this very day, Hollywood and the world over on how we watch, what we watch, how it all comes together. So much of that goes back to Desilu and, and to Lucille in particular. Uh, that's a hell of a legacy. And her embrace of her hometown and saying, don't just celebrate me, celebrate comedy, going back now, I guess the earliest conversations probably 40 some odd years ago. And it actually happened, Journey. That does not happen very often. Well, I think that uh, Lucille Ball had foresight and had vision and had learned a few things in her career. You know, she was as much having to be a resilient survivor in that industry. You know, it's not like she was handed anything. She grew up with very little means and had a, a really rough, you know, go into the industry and fought for everything she had. So uh, it makes sense now. I love that it's come full circle that what she prescribed will now be this cultural institution that enriches her hometown region and the nation really when it comes to preserving comedy's heritage, culturally, economically and beyond for generations to come. It's like Lucille Ball is still doing it, you know, this many decades later uh, because she was a visionary. And as Carol Burnett will joke, she had balls. <laughs> so yeah. uh, talk about visionaries. I mean, she and Desi Arnaz, let's talk about that for a quick second. 1950s television and entertainment. And you have a woman and a, and a Cuban immigrant minority coming together and saying to CBS executives, no, we want Desi to play my husband on the show. And they balked and said, no way. And they took the show on the road vaudeville style to sort of prove to CBS executives that 
American audiences would embrace them as a couple. And they were married, you know, but the CBS executives in 1950 said no one will believe that or embrace it. Um, and it went on from there. I mean, Desi Arnaz pioneered the concept of syndication and was once laughed at in a business meeting with those same executives when he wanted rights to the tapes after they aired. You know, they, they were chuckling, saying, who's going to want to watch them after they air? Things like that. So the three camera, uh, first sitcom to use the three camera angle editing technique, even though it was costly. They shot the episodes on uh, 35 millimeter film. Uh, so that's one reason the show was preserved versus being shot on kinescope, which deteriorated. And that's because they wanted to live on the West Coast and not in New York, where most television was being made at the time. So it's true. They just they didn't care what had been done before them. They did what they wanted. And they they were one of the it's one of the greatest early entertainment stories of um, holding on to artistic uh ownership and creativity they said we'll produce the show ourselves out of pocket cbs and we'll sell it to you versus having to really be as beholden to the network uh mm. as some other business models at the time so they flipped the entertainment business model on its head and in some ways the rest is history but what a what a massive legacy to celebrate before we built the na you know the, the national comedy center uh, 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 just amazing and and uh, uh, a story that uh, really warrants being told over and over again you then get in the involved in the picture you're you're still young now you have three young kids you were probably in your 20s i'm going to guess when you started this uh, project Talk about those early days of the early plans. You raised a lot of money. I know the state stepped up, the county stepped up, private donors stepped up. Jamestown and Erie County are not exactly in the mainstream of Broadway. It's not like you did this, you know, in Midtown or we were just at the Jackie Robinson Museum, a, a project that also took a very long time to get off the ground for uh, a film as part of the Tribeca Film Festival uh this is one hell of a journey go back to the earliest days and your first remembrances of the earliest conversations about what would become the national comedy center well at the time the phrase being thrown around was comedy hall of fame for kind of obvious reasons the the uh similarities to cooperstown and what we envisioned you know a destination to celebrate uh, something so significant in our culture. And fairly early on, I kind of recognized that that would be a lightning rod. Like, here we are, Jamestown. We're not L.A. We're not Chicago, a great comedy city. We're not New York. Uh, throwing a flag in the ground and saying, we're the comedy capital, or we're going to be the comedy capital and build this. And the more uh, conversations with artists and the comedy community, and, you know, by virtue of producing the festival and interfacing with artists for so many years along the way, it became clear this is really more the approach the approach of an art museum, right? This is art. It's not even baseball with statistics, although you could look at, you could opt to look at uh, album sales or things like that, ticket sales. But rather than take that route, we decided to build something that was much more focused on um, significant contributions to the art form, focus on the work rather than necessarily focus on the glorification or ranking or inductions of individuals as our primary focus. Uh, now, if that checks a box for you or you love the idea of a hall, a, a hall of Fame and who's in and who's out, believe me, this museum and the experience and the storytelling uh, 
satiates you in that way. It, it is what Cooperstown is to baseball. It is what the Rock Hall is in Cleveland now for comedy. And that's great. And the art form and the artists deserve that. Um, but again, when you walk through the galleries and the experience, it's much more that you're enjoying the products of that work than you are worried about uh, necessarily the personal story of the, the, the artist behind the scenes. So we organize it by genres of comedy. Um, it's much more about the craft and the process because our compass became, another way to put this, someone asked me, why didn't comedy get the same level of respect? Why hasn't it, you know, to channel Rodney Dangerfield for a moment? And I think the answer is that good comedy looks easy. Comedy well done looks easy and feels like it's just very natural. And so many casual comedy consumers, average Joe citizens think that stand-up comedians are up there winging it. They have no sense of the level of honing and precision that comedy has, whether it's a film scene or a television show or um, a stand-up performance. And that was that became a helpful compass, compass in the design of the, the exhibits. Uh, great, great stuff. And a couple people I think have played sort of an outsized role. I first learned of the National Comedy Center from one of your board members, the great Lewis Black. I know Lewis has been a real champion of the Comedy Center and the Carlin family and Kelly in particular. Could you talk about those two people in particular? And uh, I know that George Carlin is really celebrated in an absolutely magnificent way at the National Comedy Center. Yes, so uh, it had it was rumored to be the case that George Carlin had these joke files that sat with his daughter in her garage in California. And I had heard about this, but I didn't have a relationship with her initially. And I reached out to her and uh, met with her out in L.A., uh, eventually went to her home and she showed me the joke notes. And it's one of the most surreal and incredible experiences of my life because we had not yet built the Comedy Center. It was in its very early stages. Um, and it's funny that I, I happened to have an iPad with me that I asked her if I could film a little bit just for note taking because I was trying to, you know, go back to the people we were working on the concept and design with to say that this thing existed or to even just look at what do comedians notes, what do they look like? So let's let this sort of... Um, permeate our our planning and now you see that footage that I took for my own note purposes uh in the exhibit of Kelly leafing through these file boxes and folders with Ziploc baggies inside and Carlin's process was to save uh bar napkins hotel stationery tiny tiny scraps of paper sometimes no more than the size of a quarter with his handwritten uh, musings on any given topic and so for a Carlin fan, the National Comedy Center is Mecca. You could spend all day, probably more than a day, going through tens of thousands of his joke files and see the early musings on any given topic and then sort of how those relate to finished, polished HBO specials later in his career. And what we did was use that as a we used that archive as a case study on the comedic mind. So along the way, we, we strengthened our relationship with Kelly she had said loudly and clearly that many people had approached her over the years or that a lot of organizations had come and gone saying, we're going to build a comedy hall of fame and, you know, or a, something that's more like a rock, a hard rock cafe of comedy. And we want your dad's stuff. And for whatever reason, 
she decided that we were doing this for the right reasons and that we were the right people to entrust this legacy and material to. And in 2016, she donated the archives to us and that was a, a domino. It's definitely fair to say, you know, the New York Times covered it and we started to become the repository and the place. And as Lewis Black calls it, the Library of Congress of comedy that hadn't really existed. And uh, Lewis, I think we had booked in 2016 to headline our festival. It was an election year. We had Lewis Black and Trevor Noah. And of course, when he came to town, I toured him through the construction site of this old dilapidated train station that we had we had decided would be our, our site for the museum. And I think he, he got it instantly. In fact, he's the one, if you come to the National Comedy Center and go downstairs to the blue room, the basement of the museum, the completely uncensored experience in comedy uh, that talks about what's been most controversial through our history. When I toured him through, I was kind of apologetic about how the crumbling walls and grittiness of it. And he said, no, it's beautiful. Leave it just how it is. And he was right, because comedy or even the best comedy venues are often dungeness with low ceilings and they're gritty, just like the art form. And uh, so that was that was a note from him that helped. And he's been a big supporter and ambassador ever since. Yeah, just an incredible guy. And uh, we were thrilled to be there uh, with you uh, at Chautauqua for his first performance post-COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. in front of a live audience. And it was a very special night. And you see how much it meant to Lewis to be in Jamestown, to be part of the National Comedy Center family, a member of the board, and, and a real champion for everything you're doing. He's just an extraordinary guy. Yeah, he uh, started as a playwright. And then he jokes that he went to stand up because I think he wasn't finding the success he had hoped for as a playwright, which is an inspiration to a lot of people because it wasn't like he was... 17 years old, you know, trying his hand at stand-up and trying to get stage time at clubs. Um, and now he's one of the best stand-ups to ever do it. You know, one of the best to ever play the game, so to speak. His most recent special, uh, the 2023 special of Lewis Blacks, is one of my favorites of any special I've ever seen. And he so brilliantly weaves in the experience and his own personal experience through COVID in a way that somehow isn't cliche. You know, in some ways people are ready to stop talking about it. And he is brilliant in how he weaves it in. And it's absolutely hilarious. Um, and it's there's a very poignant moment that actually brings a, a tear to my eye where he talks about, he makes a really good joke about his life choices that you have to see in the special because I would, I would not do it justice. But he makes the point that the audience became his family, you know, because he really focused on his career. Audiences became his relation, his primary relationship and his family. And so COVID was more devastating to comedians than maybe many of us, because that's the energy that they have come to know and thrive upon. And to be without audiences for more than a year was devastating. Yeah, so so well said. We we've gotten to work with him a number of times, and I, I always give him uh, credit for the line. But many years ago, we were in California for something, and we ended up playing golf with Lewis and Don Felder, who was in the Eagles for many years. He wrote Hotel California, and Lewis had this amazing line where he talked about you know golf is notoriously difficult for most of us. And he said, "I've never worked so hard at something with so little progress." <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that that captured the true essence of golf for most of us.
So the, the Comedy Center comes together. You take an old, dilapidated train station building. You build on, around, over, under, next to, and create a pretty big footprint. I mean, it's, it's an awfully big building. Yes, and I, I really... It, one thing I love about it is the mix of old and new. Like the idea of this museum is not just that it's a history museum celebrating, you know, the comedy's past. It's it's really a celebration of comedy, the art form. It's a preservation of its heritage. It's a storytelling experience about its history, but also its present. You know, what's going on right now in comedy and let's learn about the art form so that we're inspiring the future of comedy, not just talking about its past. And so a historic train station made for a perfect palette other than that it's on the historic registry. So our designers and architects and museum exhibit creators were like, let me get this straight. We can't change the floor plan at all. We can't bastardize the structure whatsoever. There are walls we can't even drill into that are marble and, you know, historically registered. And I said, that's right. As if this project wasn't hard enough. We have to we have to just work within this floor plan, but it feels great for that reason. And it's the same train station Lucille Ball passed through on her way to auditions in New York uh, as a young woman. And so I love that about it. Uh, Jamestown happens to be equidistant between New York and Chicago, two great comedy cities, of course, and hotbeds. And I would be remiss if I didn't credit Tom Benson, our uh, board president, with being able to pull together the financing to figure out how to rehab a, an adaptive use of two existing buildings. We actually connected the train station to the former trolley garage of Jamestown, another old building, uh, and get all of this figured out from 19 different funding sources. So he and I really were partners in crime for a decade bringing this to fruition. Amazing. And the state stepped up and Erie County stepped up. Yes, we um, we wrote grants that were federal in nature, in nature, you know, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, I had toured him through the construction site early on. And I, I almost couldn't believe when people believed in it. Cause I, I tried to put myself in their shoes and thought this must sound completely nuts. You know, as you arrive in Jamestown to talk about the geography for a second and here's this person touring you through a dilapidated train station saying, we're going to build the national destination for the celebration of comedy right here in Jamestown, New York. And many times with those tours, it was someone's first visit to Jamestown, New York. But uh, whatever we were doing, people latched on and believed in it from Kelly Carlin to Chuck Schumer to at the time, Governor Cuomo, um, to the comedy community itself. You know, Alan Zweibel, original Saturday Night Live head writer, toured him as uh, toured uh, him through the construction site with his wife, Robin Zweibel, who had been a page on Saturday Night Live. And I remember her saying to me, you know, I have this old box of stuff from those early days. Do you want it? And I said, sure. And now I laugh because it's a big portion of an exhibit on display with origin, the, the first episodes, production papers, and uh, uh, Rosanna Dana origin papers. Uh, it's like the greatest box somebody had sitting in their house somewhere of Saturday Night Live's early days. And uh, it's from the Zweibels, and they're on our advisory board also. Yeah, uh, we, we love Alan. We had him on the show a couple of years ago. Such a brilliant, brilliant writer. I love his novels also. His comedy yeah. books are just, I think he's won the, the highest award in the country, I think, for writing in comedy. The, 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 I want to say the Thurber Award. And I think he's won it a couple of times. Yeah. I think so. But and 
it's funny you mentioned that when we were talking about whether this is a hall of fame or an art museum approach to comedy and in celebrating it, we do have an awards and distinctions exhibit, which talks about all, which talks about the complex relationship between comedy and awards, right? Like uh, the Oscars traditionally by and large snub comedies, you know, you can make right. the greatest comedy ever and the likelihood it's going to win Oscars over dramas is, is low. Right. And so we do an exhibit all about the different awards won in comedy, including the Thurber and Mark Twain prize and Peabody's right. uh, Emmys and so on. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'll come back to the, the Twain prize a little later. I have a couple of good stories to share with you about that, but let's dig in a little deeper into the comedy center my son Benny and I went up there during COVID and then I came back with our mutual friend, the great Rob Schwartz. Uh, and uh, I must tell you, Journey, and this is where I'll be a fan for a moment. I was absolutely blown away. The museum experience that you get is incredible and you can spend days there and you see the things that you would sort of maybe expect to see. Um, like the Seinfeld puffy shirt and Rodney Dangerfield's, you know, signature, you know, black suit and red tie. But then you see all the things that you wouldn't expect to see, like the Lenny Bruce exhibit in the Blue Room and that interactive archive where you can go back and pull clips from all the great friars and Dean Martin roasts and and going all the way back to the early pioneers, not just Lucille Ball, but Moms Mabley and, and so many others, the depth of what you do in audio, in the visual mediums of comedy, being able to sit in an interactive table with your hand and page through scripts of old classic sitcoms going back to Mary Tyler Moore and, and many others. Uh, the place is incredibly progressive in many ways, but really gets the balance right of paying homage to the past, but in a super contemporary way that I think will resonate not only with people my age, but much more importantly, resonate with younger people. Well, thank you for that, uh, for sharing that experience in that way. It's, it pleases me so much to hear it from someone else's perspective as a visitor first. And it's true. We, uh, it's one of the most interactive and immersive and personalized uh, experiences in any museum in the world. We use RFID technology to uh, take from visitors their sense of humor profile upon entry, where they're tapping what they find funny. And then that's those attributes uh, behind the scenes are loaded into a chip around their wrist and then exhibits can respond to their sense of humor and read the room like any good comedian would throughout their visit. But you're also standing in the presence when it comes to the artifacts on display of the DNA of the greats of all time. You're looking at Charlie Chaplin's cane and that's what I think is so great. If, if, that's, if that's what you love, the museum, if you just looked at artifacts, you'd probably leave completely satisfied with this experience. If for some reason the artifacts don't do it for you and you want to have an immersive interactive experience that's very high tech, or um, you're digging through comedy's great libraries of different things, even things that were the earliest uh, comedy pieces to go viral on the internet or social media stories of comedy, then that's here too. So we always looked at it as sort of annotating the storytelling of comedy with material artifacts and that's where you get a, an emotional reaction. You know, people are learning and they're laughing and remembering things or showing 
it's great because most people visit a, a museum with someone of another generation or another age cohort. So it's beautiful when you see, you know, a, a kid's grandfather who knows Mort Saul as a political comedian and the kid is 20 years old and only knows Trevor Noah on The Daily Show and thinks he started it all and may not even know about the era of Jon Stewart. When they connect on that topic and on the comedy continuum wall, which is about comedy's lineage and connections over time and who has collaborated with one another and who influenced one another, to make those connections to comedies from comedy's past to its present is one of the most beautiful things you witness with people of visitors of different generations. Um, and I still remember one of the designers from Jack Rouse Associates in Cincinnati, as we were in the room conceiving of the technology going, people want to see the stuff. <laughs> you still need to get the stuff. Like you can't have one without the other. And I'm so grateful that we, we approached it that way. And you got it just so right. Uh, l let's talk about the relationship with another scion of comedy, and that's the Reiner family and Carl Reiner. Going back, I'm so glad you shared the story of visiting Kelly Carlin, and uh, you got a, another great story out of you, that magical box that you got from this Weibel family. But the relationship with the Reiner family and the Carl Reiner archive in particular, really, I think, vaulted the museum up another level in so many ways. Can you talk about the origin of that and tell us about the relationship with Carl Reiner and the Reiner family? Sure. So obviously Carl Reiner is one of the most prolific comedic minds the world will ever know. And what I love about his story in particular is that if you look at his career, he was one of the greatest collaborators in comedy. He made everyone around him better. And so the Carl Reiner archive, 65 boxes of material over 70 years, allows us to exhibit the stories of not just Carl Reiner, but his collaborations with, uh, you know, a murderer's row of the greatest of all time, Mel Brooks, Steve Martin, Sid Caesar, Dick Van Dyke, Mary Tyler Moore. And he's very gracious in one of the pieces in the exhibit of saying, you know, the reason he's standing on stage accepting an award is because of those, pe because those people were in his life. But what we, kind of exude in the in the exhibit is that he made everyone around him better. And so there's almost no great greater comedy story to tell. And it's a privilege to be the home of the Carl Reiner exhibit. We named our preservation department for him. Um, the origin of the relationship, the nexus there was George Shapiro. So George Shapiro, who many listeners probably already know, uh, managed uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Andy Kaufman, executive produced the show Seinfeld. He uh, was a member of our advisory board. In fact, Kelly Carlin was the one who introduced me to him. And we met in Los Angeles and I shared with him the vision. He attended our grand opening here in Jamestown. People remember him skipping down the streets of Jamestown. He was so happy with it. Uh, he cut the ribbons on the exhibits with the puffy shirt and on Andy Kaufman's display case with Andy Kaufman's handwritten uh, will and Testament he wrote when he was 12 and the wrestling belt and Elvis suit and the whole the whole nine yards. And, you know, to see George Shapiro beaming and happy and proud, it was like, you know, he was in his happy place because no one loved comedy more than he did. Well, he happens to also be Carl Reiner's nephew and, and work, of course, very closely on Carl's uh, career in archives. And so when Carl passed, 
Uh, Carl had also been a, an advisory board member of the National Comedy Center and had not made it to Jamestown. It was George who connected us with the rest of the family to talk about how we should be the place to preserve these archives. Uh, amazing story. I, I, through George, many years ago, I had a chance to work with Carl Reiner. We did a show together at the Pantages Theater, a gorgeous theater in Los Angeles. And he was so genuine. He also was a very prolific writer, wrote a lot of books. And he had one novel where there was a character who was adopted and I'm adopted. And we ended up having a whole conversation about it. And you could tell that he was really interested in the conversation, mm -hmm. that the way he looked you in the eye. And it was such a memorable afternoon working with him. It was a thrill of a lifetime for me to get to work with him, to get to instruct the people at the Pantages to put the name Carl Reiner up on their marquee on Sunset Boulevard uh, for something that I was involved with. And he was also a recipient of the Mark Twain Prize. And uh, my son Benny and I, going back again, had a magical night. Uh, the original producers of the Twain Prize were very good friends of ours. One of them, sadly, Bob Kaminsky, just passed. And uh, we were coming back. It was the 10th anniversary. I think the honoree was Billy Crystal. And there was a dinner at the Supreme Court that was hosted by Justice Kennedy. And I remember Rob Reiner got up and pulled a parking ticket out of his jacket pocket and asked Justice Kennedy if he could take care of the parking ticket for him, <laughs> as only someone like Rob Reiner could do. Yeah. And we ended up on a bus going back to the hotel with Rob and Robin Williams and John Lovitz and my son and I, just the five of us on the wow. bus. They were only worried that Martin Short was not on the bus and that he was lost somewhere in Washington. And they were worried about him as a Canadian, that he would not be able to find his way. But the Reiner family is, in many ways, I think the first family of comedy in America. Uh, and uh, uh, the honor that you had paid to him, not only as the trusted keeper of his archives, but more broadly, the entire archives of the Comedy Center being under the Reiner family umbrella. I, I couldn't think of a better person for it. I'm glad to hear you say that. I feel the same way. I couldn't agree more. And uh, it one another surreal moment in this whole uh, process was when uh, Mel Brooks and Rob Reiner uh, went on the Today Show to announce to the world that this would be the preservation home and exhibit home of of Carl's archives. And one of the things that's really neat is that when you enter, when you first go through the turnstile at the museum, the piece that greets you called You Are Here is a little bit zoomed out. It's commentary from the comedy community about why we built this place and why is comedy more than entertainment. And Billy Crystal so rightly says, everyone else has a place, why not us? And uh, in our interview with Carl Reiner for the museum, even when we weren't talking about the origin and Lucy, I don't even think we had shared with him necessarily the, the impetus for it. So he was really earnestly just talking about his influences and who else was great in the art form, uh, not the origins of Jamestown. And off the cuff, he just said, you know, maybe one of the best to ever do it was Lucille Ball. And so it became a perfect piece when you walk through the turnstile to uh, incorporate and sort of set the tone. 
Fantastic. So such a great story. And you've sort of become now the preferred home for the archives of many of the greats. I think it was just announced recently that you uh, inherited a small treasure trove of 65,000 jokes from the great Joan Rivers. Oh, and talk about the crown jewels of comedy that exist on planet Earth. Joan Rivers' legendary joke file is among them, and uh, this is the right place for it. And I couldn't be happier about this announcement. Talk about another surreal moment. These are typewritten jokes by Joan Rivers from the 1950s through 2014. And it's another example of like, if somebody has not worked in comedy and they're just a casual consumer of comedy who likes to laugh, they can't fathom of someone even writing or having, or let alone filing and categorizing 65,000 jokes. And it shows the professionalism and the work and the work ethic that it takes to be Joan Rivers and to have a career where you find success every year of every decade somehow in a tough industry. Uh, and as a woman starting out in the 1950s. And so you see this famous joke file and there are categories and cross references. You know, this was a working file for her and you can, it's almost a time capsule of someone's perspective on the world and our society uh, and let alone it being Joan Rivers, which is really hilarious. Um, through a crazy trajectory of our of our culture from the 50s through 2014. It's amazing. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, I, I can't tell you what a joy it is to talk to you, to see you. I treasure my visits to Jamestown. I can't wait to get back. Uh, the museum has been recognized, and you mentioned it earlier, but it's it's worth mentioning again. You're achieving not just recognition in the town, in the county, in New York State, but nationally and globally, that must make you feel pretty good that you got an awful bit right here. Thank you again for saying such nice things. And I'm laughing as I'm thinking about this, these recognitions, because we're always sort of surprised and maybe that's because it's comedy. You know, I think even comedians go, really, me? Uh, but recently someone said, hey, did you know you were named one of the top 50 museum influencers worldwide? I was like, me, really? I just, I never, it wasn't my career path. It's not like I set forth to build museums. I found myself here celebrating comedy. You know, that was the focus. Uh, but we are so glad that whether you are average Joe American tourist passing through the area, or you are a comedic artist yourself, you have found an experience that resonates with you. And we knew from the start that authenticity was key. Comedy is not a group of people that takes kindly to outsiders telling their story. Uh, and uh, I can't tell you the amount of things that ended up on the cutting room floor, you know, cheesy ideas tossed around by people that didn't come from comedy, but maybe had built museums or attractions or theme parks. And so we worked really hard to make sure that this was, in fact, one of the things that we don't tout, but you may notice going through the museum, it's all in, there's not a third party institutional voiceover. It's not the museum saying in 1957, every story you're hearing in the museum is in the voice of a comedian or comedy creator based on these extensive interviews we did so that we would achieve authenticity. It's, it's of the community and for the community. Um, and one of the most recent things we opened that 
I think a lot of people have yet to see that is a blockbuster is the Johnny Carson immersive experience. And it's a great example of that. Rather than us just give you the history of why we as an institution think Johnny was the king of late night or how he set the template, you're hearing Bette Midler describe what it was like to be his famous last guest uh, and that he set the template. And so we did original interviews that we shot with uh, folks within the last 12 months uh, for the exhibit. Jimmy Fallon is your hologram host. And then you're hearing from Mel Brooks, Jay Leno, Byron Allen, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Carol Liefer, uh, and so many more, what it meant to one's career in life to be on Carson. And, and Byron Allen, I think, says it best. Comedians have two birthdays. You're actually the day you're born and the day you're on Johnny Carson, because after that, nothing's the same. Oh, so well said. And I, I love your late night exhibit and the chance to pull and watch a lot of those old Karnak, the magnificent clips. Oh, it's just endlessly entertaining. All right. As we start to wrap journey, let's talk about the challenge that you have. You said you're roughly halfway in between New York and Chicago, but not that close to either. You're roughly in between Buffalo, Pittsburgh and Cleveland, but not that close to either. Sort of close, but not that close. Talk about the challenge of doing something that you're doing, playing at the very highest level of ball, but in a sort of unique part of a beautiful part of, of my home state, your home state of New York, but not exactly right down Broadway. That's right. And I'm glad you brought it up, our geography. It's, it's a common question. So don't worry if you're listening. We didn't just say to ourselves, if we build it, they will come. We, in order to fund a project of this magnitude and get buy-in, for-profit, non-profit, public-private partnership, we didn't do it without extensive preceding feasibility analysis. So we started there. We had a concept, but first we spent a lot of time uh, studying with experts that were third parties uh, whether this would work here in this geography. And the good news is uh, we're within a day's drive of two thirds of the US population and Canada's. So it's a, it's a drive to destination. Uh, the other thing we know is that strangely or not, attractions and museums and cultural destinations like this work as destinations. There have been museums that have opened in Manhattan who have come and gone within 19 months because there's so much competition culturally. Uh, and so the fact that we sit nestled within so much of uh, the U.S. Northeast population. We're two hours from Ohio. Like you said, we're within three hours of Toronto, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Cleveland, Syracuse, Rochester. Puts us within, and we're, you know, we're two hours from Niagara Falls, one of the most visited destinations worldwide. So uh, we didn't get here without taking a hard look at that. And uh, it's worked out really well. And I love the cross section of visitors we get. The Lucille Ball Comedy Festival that we still produce every August. Incredibly, we see ticket buyer zip codes from nearly all 50 states every year. I'm always, I'm always uh, angry, like, oh, we didn't hit 50. We had 42 US states represented, or this year, 47 you know, US states represented. Um, but it shows people travel for good cultural uh, products. Uh, and how is the museum doing? Hey, opening right before 
a global pandemic is never anyone's first choice. Uh, we opened in August of 2018. We had one year of operation, 2019. Uh, I don't mind saying it because I'm proud of the decisions we made. We put every resource we had into making the experience and the exhibits great and cutting no corners. And around every corner, we realized, oh, we'd underscoped what it would take to make this exhibit soar or the amount of content it would need to really do justice to, you know, whatever story we're telling, which meant we were pulling from our marketing budget. You know, we wanted to make sure that the museum experience itself was done right. And there's only one way to do it. And so that first year we were then shifting focus to operating the place and getting the word out about what we had created. Um, we were finishing the museum the day it opened, you know, it was a wild ride and so we had one full year of operation 2019 to tell the world that we existed and then a pandemic hit. Uh, I think it allowed us in some ways a little time to forge relationships like the ones that we talked about here already today. And it allowed people, it allowed some accolades to be racked up. You know, you meant, we mentioned USA Today's Best New Museum. We were just recently named to US News and World Report, uh, their list of the top 25 family weekend getaways in the country. Disney World and Disneyland are on that list. So, you know, we made it through the pandemic. Uh, I think everyone in tourism and, and cultural travel is still crawling out of that. It's not like everything's back to normal quite yet, um, but the museum's doing great for the right reasons. The fact that it is doing what it set forth to do and that it is the nation's um, material archive and preservation home and that we're telling the stories that we're being that were undertold before means we're we're doing what we set forth to do, and so I'm thrilled. Oh, a, a, as you should be, and be remiss not to mention what a beautiful part of the country it is. That Lake Chautauqua and that area where you are in Jamestown, I had never been there. It is absolutely stunning, and it is truly a destination uh, that starts with you, of course. But it's just a great place to be. Most comedians, Lewis Black included, Alan Zweibel, W. Kamau Bell, so many people who have come, Maria Bamford, uh, I think of, I'm, I'm having mental imagery of people I've taken out on boats. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone comes to the area and goes, where the hell is Jamestown? They're usually blown away by the museum. And then I say, all right, well, let's, you know, have cocktails on a boat and, and sit on the porches of Chautauqua Institution that you mentioned and you had visited. The, the original... The origination of the Chautauqua movement in the 1800s started here, right near Jamestown on Chautauqua Lake. We're neighbors. And that it's so interesting that that was all about traveling for leisure learning. It was people who wanted to like learn on vacation and relax on the lake. And so there's no better partner for us here in the region. And comedians come now and want to come every summer and write. They just want to float on a boat and get some writing done, sit on the porches, have conversations with other greats in comedy. Um, Mark Russell, an incredible political satirist of the years and years of PBS specials that aired nationwide, uh, had a home here. And so it was great to see him hold court just a year ago with Rob Reiner and Louis Black or or other times W. Kamau Bell and Alan Bell here at Chautauqua on the Lake. Fantastic. Well, Journey, I so enjoyed getting a chance to talk about your journey and you're an absolute jewel. How you balance this all, running the museum as you do, mother of three kids. I know every once in a while you, you take a dip in, 
in Chautauqua Lake and go for a swim, but you managed to just keep it all going and do it with a smile and with a charm and a charisma that comes, you know, right across to anybody who is in your company. And, and we met quite accidentally. Uh, when I went to the museum, one of your people, I just said I was sent here by Lewis Black and somebody, I think it was Rich on your team, found me and made sure that we got introduced to each other without agenda. And that began a, a, a friendship which endures to this day and hopefully will for many years to come. Um, let's figure out a way to do something together again. We loved having you on stage at Advertising Week a few years ago. We, we love and adore comedy and uh, we are very proud over the years. We've had Lewis Black on our stage and other great comedy legends, Trevor Noah, many you mentioned. Uh, Pete Holmes. Jim Gaffigan. Jim we Gaffigan. We share the relationship with Jim on our Nick, advisory board. Amy Schumer, Nikki Glazer. Uh, Larry Wilmore, Jimmy Fallon, my dear friend Susie Essman, John Stewart, so many others. Uh, and in the UK, you know, we took that over. We had uh, Jack Whitehall and John Bishop and Jimmy Carr. So we absolutely love it. And whether your flavor of ice cream is the old classics going back to the Ernie Kovacs and Lenny Bruce era or right up to the Taylor Tomlinson's of today, the National Comedy Center has it all. And uh, it is just an incredible place. And I can't thank you enough for spending a little time with us here on Great Minds. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>